Hello and welcome back to The Culture We Speak. I'm your host, Diana Latimer-Hearn. Thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, I'm joined by two orthophonists or speech-language pathologists who are leading anti-racism advocacy in the professions of speech-language pathology and audiology in Quebec. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be sheep. For centuries, Onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. Today we are joined by two amazing guests. The first, Ms. Sandrine Umunoza, is a bilingual speech-language pathologist of Rwandan origin who practices in English and French. She lives in Gatineau, Quebec, where she owns her own private practice, Cabinet d'Autophonie L'Envol. She has also offered various conferences and workshops across Canada about how to better be culturally responsive in practice, and she specializes in multilingual language development and multilingual education practices with a focus on identity and culture. Also, for the past 10 years, Sandrine has been involved with Indigenous communities to better serve their communication, language, and learning needs. She teaches at the University of Montreal at the Speech, Language, and Audiology Master's Program and the University of Quebec in Chicoutimi in the Department of Education Sciences. Sandrine is an active member and co-founder of Le Groupe d'Action Antiraciste en Autophonie et en Audiologie, or GAROA, known in English as the Anti-Racism Advocacy Group for Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology. She is the co-author of the report on the impacts of systemic racism in the speech language pathology and audiology professions in Quebec, which was published in August of 2020. Welcome, Sandrine, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here, Tiana. Our second guest, Ms. Manar Javel, is a trilingual speech language pathologist of Lebanese and Syrian origins who was born and raised in Montreal. She works in the public health system and in private practice, primarily with racialized and multilingual communities. For the past three years, she has been practicing with autistic children and their families. She's interested in multilingualism, identity matters, and anti-racist activism, and is continually learning in order to make her practice more respectful of neurodiversity and more inclusive. Also, as of recently, she started working as a project coordinator for the implementation of diversity, equity, and inclusion practices in the Department of Speech-Language Pathology at the University of Quebec in Trois-Rivières. Anar is an active member of the aforementioned GAROA. Through her volunteer work, she has offered workshops covering topics such as cultural responsiveness, implicit biases, and microaggressions. She is also the co-author of the report on the impacts of systemic racism in the speech-language pathology and audiology professions in Quebec. She currently lives in Sarajevo, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Thank you, Manar, for being a guest. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. After all of that awesomeness, I look forward to a very enriching conversation today. Before we start, I wanted to recognize that I was born, raised, and that I work in Chochake, Montreal, which is located on land that is part of the unceded traditional territory of the Kanyangahaga Mohawk, belonging to the Haudenosaunee Confederacy that has long served as a place of gathering and exchange between indigenous nations. And on my end, same uh, as Onar, I'm in Canada, but in Gatineau, close to Ottawa. And this is the unceded territory of the Anishinaabeg Nation. And again, we just want to acknowledge the privilege that we have to be living and working and just being able to be who we are on these unceded lands. Thank you both for those acknowledgements. So I'd like to start off with just a general overview of the historical and political context of French and English Canadian situation. So the Canadian uh, history is uh, marked a lot by language, actually, which is why I think it was interesting to be invited on this podcast is uh, the land we live on. So Canada, there's historically been two major factions. So the British and the French who came and settled on this land. And this has brought quite a distinct history to this land where we have the French in Quebec, the province we, uh, Manar and I mostly grew up and lived in and worked in, who are mostly French-speaking people, the Quebecers, the Quebecois, and the rest of Canada, so the big portion of Canadians are mostly a majority English speakers. So there is this big need in Quebec to promote French 
and to make sure that we keep our, our French language as a language that will stay and can be used. And there is this fear of it disappearing because of the amount of English speakers there is um, in the rest of Canada. And I would add that in the 60s and 70s in Quebec, uh, we had, I'm saying we, but I wasn't born or there, but we had the quiet revolution, Révolution tranquille. And then during that period, there was a strong movement to recognize French language. This is also when the separatist movement was boiling, you know, and, and coming to, to life, which uh, is the movement where people in Quebec wanted to be an independent country. It was a really important historical moment for Quebec. And during that period, Bill uh, 101, or Loi 101, also called the, ch the Charter of French Language, was created. And the aim of it was to protect French language against, let's say, English language. So there was some different uh, regulations that were implemented in order to protect the language, um, which I think mostly was, was good because French was kind of a minority and it was threatened in certain ways. And it was also a strong way of, of defining a Quebecois identity. Unfortunately, in the past years, this sense of identity has developed in a different way, in a less inclusive way, let's say. And uh, we've had two uh, new laws in Quebec that were implemented, Bill, sorry, Bill 21 and Bill 96. Uh, Bill 21, which prevents certain people who work in the public sector, like teachers, uh, like judges, like police officers, to uh, wear any conspicuous religious signs. And also Bill 96 makes Bill 101 more strict regarding French language. And certain aspects of it are discriminatory. Uh, at least I consider also discriminatory. For example, it um, imposes on immigrants, for example, to um, they only have six months uh, where they can be served in English or in their mother tongue with an interpreter, for example, in any public services. But after six months, they're expected to master French enough to be served in French when they go to a doctor appointment or when they need to use the justice system and so on. So, yeah, it's it, the matter of French language of identity of secularism are big topics in Quebec and in Canada, and they can take different turns and they have been taking different turns across history. What I hear you saying is essentially that Language is protected in Quebec because of the it being tied to French identity. And on the culture we speak, we often discuss how culture and language are so closely intertwined that you can't separate the two. The challenge being then that a person who comes into Quebec to live there, maybe an immigrant who comes to the province to live, will end up being in a situation where they're forced to pick up a new language, but with that, that has cultural implications. And they're forced to then sacrifice certain aspects of their identity in order to quote unquote fit into this cultural model where language is protected. And then I also wanted to point out that it differs from what we do in the US. We protect a lot of these cultural aspects or different um, aspects of our identity, whether that be your gender identity, your sexuality, your race, your age. We, we protect certain things and we can't discriminate against them by law, but we never look at language specifically. And so language for us ends up being a backdoor to perpetuate a lot of these discriminations that we're quote unquote not supposed to be doing. So for me, it's an interesting sort of way of looking at what's going on there, how it differs from the experience here where we don't consider the language piece. Um, we are allowed to use that. We can perpetuate linguism or discrimination by language. Um, and we often do. Though it would be frowned upon, it's not necessarily an illegal thing to do here. Yeah, like I think there are two sides of it. I think the side where we're protecting French is great, but I don't think protecting French should come at the cost of discriminating people of course. Uh, who are newcomers or, you know, on other, other aspects, so. One of the so, things that we do talk about is also the lack of um, understanding, uh, the lack of knowledge that sometimes mainstream policymakers will have or will actually, they will lack about bilingualism and multilingualism. The fact that having one language, for example, a mother tongue, if you come as an immigrant, does not mean that because you keep using it and because you can use interpreters to help yourself in situations that are very important for your everyday survival in a new country country or a new state or that that does not affect negatively you learning the French language, which again, Manat and I understand and agree, we want French to stay, we want to protect it. We're just noticing sometimes that we're forgetting that language and identity cannot be dissociated. And because of that, 
if we just focus too much on language, we might forget about cultural identity. And that's where, like you said, Diana, it might impact newcomers in a different way. Anar, can you speak a little bit more about how that has specifically impacted you, your family, or those in your community coming into Quebec? There will be many things that I could say. I mean, I was born in, in Montreal, in Quebec, and I'm pretty privileged to be born there. And mostly my life has been great. I haven't faced major challenges as the second generation that, that I am. But of course, for my parents, it, it was more complicated because they came here. My dad, so my dad is, is Lebanese. My mom is Syrian. My dad spoke French somehow. My mom did not. And um, so she had to focus on learning the language when they arrived. And he uh, was trying to find a job or to uh, have his diploma recognized. And that's one of the major issues that immigrants were facing and are still now facing, unfortunately, that they are educated, they're chosen because they're educated and they have a relevant, if we can call it like that, background, and they can be quote unquote useful, but then they come and are not, again, quote unquote used because they cannot use their diploma and they cannot work with this degree that they that they got and they end up doing all kinds of jobs to survive. So that was my... Mm, the context in which my parents moved, of course, they left, they fled the war and they came to, to Canada and then they found themselves in this form of difficult economical situation because they could not use their full potential. Yeah, so that was on my parents' side. I grew up in a neighborhood where there were there was a lot of immigrants. There were kids from all kinds of countries and they spoke all kinds of different languages. And at school, I was always studying in French. But at home, uh, we always focused a lot on Arabic. So we had my parents allowed us only to speak Arabic at home. They really wanted to preserve this cultural heritage, this identity. And I'm really grateful for that. That my parents, both of them, insisted on us to speak Arabic at home. And this did not at all prevent us from learning French and then English at school and mastering those languages and, and working in those languages. And at the same time, keeping a strong tie with our, our heritage, our origins, and um, also going to Arabic school on Saturdays, like many immigrants go to all kind of different language schools. So yeah, that's that's mainly my, my uh, linguistic background. Yeah, like you said, the you're mentioning this bill that says you're limited to six months of support and then you're magically supposed to be fluent in this new cultural linguistic identity that you suddenly have to take on. And the erasure that happens in that has to be damaging, you know, just by being forced almost to do this. And fortunately, like you said, your family preserved your cultural identity and your linguistic identity. But I can't imagine being asked to, to just be stripped of my language or stripped of the way that I communicate with those whom I'm closest because it's more natural to speak to your family and to your loved ones in your native language and your first language and the language that you share. So I can't imagine. Yeah, definitely. Like I can even think of myself now. I, I live in Sarajevo and, and Boston, Herzegovina, and I've been exposed to Bosnian language for years and I've been actively learning it as a person who has, who is a speech therapist and who has, you know, big interest in language. I, I still, I've been living here for six months, seven, and I still cannot go by myself to the doctor. I mean, I could, maybe we would have some communication breakdown. So, and I've been thinking a lot about this bill that I talked about earlier. And yeah, and also when people leave their country because of a war, because of whatever the reason, and they move somewhere new, they are completely disoriented. They need to adapt. They need to learn everything. They don't have their social support, their their, their people around them. They're, they're confused with the language. They need to learn how to take the bus and how to understand the laws and everything is new. So it's normal to sometimes reach out to people. I mean, often reach out to people who are similar to you, who speak the same language that you speak in order to preserve yourself and to stay attached to, to who you are and not lose yourself. And at the same time, there is this outside pressure of, oh, you have to integrate right now, like today, tomorrow you have to integrate and, and your kids have to integrate. And sometimes people get scared and then they abandon completely their culture and they don't speak their language and they just erase themselves and assimilate themselves. And these kind of laws, unfortunately, they just increase this feeling of you need to be like blank and just be like invisible in order to survive. And that's just very violent and, and sad at the same time. And I like that you call it violent because that's what it is. It harms individuals' identities. It harms who they are every single day. I've lived in other cultures and been not necessarily forced to do that, but the challenge of existing in a space where I can't be my full self and then I'm also trying to learn what this new environment means is is extremely painful and it can be violent when you're being forced, especially legally uh, through bills and laws to strip your, your own identity away. 
So thank you for sharing that. Sandrine, I know that you also come from an immigrant family. Has your experience been similar or comparable in that way? Or what has your experience been? Yeah, it's been actually quite different from Anar. So I'm 1.5th generation, as they call it. I immigrated here as a baby. I was 18 months old. My parents came here from Rwanda. So both my parents were just enrolling into university. My father was doing his PhD. My mother was doing her master's degree. Actually, for most people who've heard of Rwandan war, it hadn't started yet. Okay, this was in 89. So everything was calm. We were just coming here to kind of do a kind of study exchange and they were going to go back. That was the idea. Unfortunately, a few years later, by 94, the war started. So there were no more talk of going back. In the meantime, as I was a child and I started going to daycare and I started, you know, I started following the educational process of Quebec. My parents didn't really speak to us much in uh, Kenya Rwanda, which is the language from Rwanda. So Kenya Rwanda, as you would say in, in, uh, in our language. And so most we were exposed to French. So French became my dominant language. And my parents, when they realized they weren't going to go back, um, they also started looking for work. Um, and that, even though my father had his PhD, used to be a university teacher and dean, um, and my mother had her master's, it was quite difficult for them to find work. And I think that was mostly where their energy was spent. We had to move to, to another province in Serio, which and then came back to Gatineau, um, which is in Quebec. All this to say, in the midst of all of this, not a lot of our home language or our cultural language was spoken to us, to me, my sister, and my brother, who was actually born here. So he's actual second generation. So we really, for me, uh, the challenge of it all and that pressure, that societal pressure of speaking French, I think my parents, what happened is they really moved into more of a let's get acclimated and let's find ways to just go about living that Canadian Quebec life. So for me personally, today, I understand somewhat my language, I can use it somewhat with a very thick accent, but it is something that's lacking. And I would say that's something that I'm always thriving to get better at and more exposure and, and trying to understand more of my roots through that. And that I would say that that would be my experience with language and with Bill 101 in those days, how it might have affected me growing up and kind of losing a bit of that, that erasure of our culture. So what we did mostly to to kind of keep together was in every celebratory event, we would have our extended family, which weren't blood relations, but just people who had immigrated together, my parents and them, they just created this huge, big, solid family with which my, again, cousins who were not blood related, but my cousins, as I call them till today, um, we were able to hear them speak and, and hear the music and eat the food. So I still have that and which I cherish a lot but we do know that there's so much that I'm missing because I don't understand the language and that would be something that I'm quite um still um that still affects me as a person today as an adult so I shift a little bit and you both talked about your parents being qualified in one place and then arriving as immigrants and not having their credentials recognized in the same way I can imagine that that is extremely damaging to families, to individuals, even just thinking of it in, in terms of a time commitment of I've already done all of this. I've already jumped through all these hoops and proven that I have what it takes to do whatever position I held before. And then I arrive in this new place and I'm not able to apply those skills in the same way. And that happens here in the U.S. as well. So I've observed this plenty of times where people are well qualified and then arrive and can't do work. I just want to know your thoughts on that. And, you know, I know my thoughts on it. I want to know what you think about that situation and the impact it might have on a family, but also just from a systemic level, how this is problematic for people. I mean, it's the first thing that comes to mind is that it's it's really frustrating because we have this huge exodus of brain from various countries, in my from the Middle East, and for various reasons, people are living are leaving. And of course, anyone would want to to chase a better better life for them, for their children, and they expect something great and better. And then they come to this new place, which offers more opportunities like I am the living expression of that that me and my siblings we had great opportunities and we had better chances in life but our parents they both of them are my parents both of them are educated both of them you know had potential careers back in their home countries and they come to this new place that promised them something and that brings them based on that something which is their brain and their knowledge and then it's just wasted and then they're uh, left working you know jobs like um any job, of course, is is valuable, but 
when you have put so much effort to study, to develop yourself, and then you have to resign yourself to, to take any job just to survive, like being a taxi driver or working in a bakery or anything. Of course, it's, it's damaging. And as I grew up, as I grew older, I could see that my parents, I mean, they never say anything, but I could see that, you know, they had also dreams. They had also aspirations. And they couldn't get the maximum of this new opportunity that this new country could have brought them. And this also leads immigrants to remain in, in poverty, situational poverty, because they come to a new country, they are facing all these obstacles that we mentioned, like adapting, learning the language and so on. And on top of that, they don't have a fair access to the work field. And they are forced to work jobs that don't bring good income and to stay in that cycle unless their children through education or through something else manage to get out of this cycle. But this can go on for generations. And again, it's violent and sad. Sandrine? One of the things that comes to mind, which is a bit different from Manar's parents' um, journey, is that my parents came here educated, again, speaking French. They both graduated from university in Quebec and still looking for a job was difficult. So even if my father had a doctoral degree in agronomy, he couldn't find any way, anywhere, a job that pertained to that degree, even though he changed provinces, came back to Quebec. It, it didn't do. He had to go back to do a college degree in IT to get into the government function where he finally was able to go up uh, the echelons until he was able to have a comfortable position that would speak to his actual competencies. But that took a while. So yeah, I would say it's mesmerizing how unfair all of this is. I would say it's not what is promised also. And I would say that the fact that we have a last name that sounds different just gets you to not be called sometimes just for, for interviews at times. So I would say that we're seeing that it's systemic, definitely. For me, there is no question. And just to jump back to the Quebec situation, you have state governors, we have province premiers. So our premier till this day does not want to acknowledge, even though he's been asked by many instances, does not want to acknowledge that systemic racism exists. I'm so sorry, but what is it that we can call this if it's not systemic? I don't know what else it can be except plain overt racism at this point. So it is really frustrating. Even though there are laws, written laws that are discriminatory, that are also anti-constitutional, but Apparently, um, there is no recognition that systemic racism exists yeah. yet. I've, I've had similar experiences here. But I will say also that it compounds because at that point, now immigrant populations are coming in and they are seen as not performing, not taking care of themselves, not able to quote unquote contribute to society. But really, they've been locked out of so many opportunities. The consequence of that lockout is then used against them as if it's their own fault, that there's something inherent in this immigrant population that suddenly this is why this problem exists. And so we can deny this systemic racism, despite all of this evidence that we have that this is what's happening, and despite the fact that we're backing it by laws, and then say there's something inherently wrong with specific groups of people, or people from this area, or people who are not from this country, or, or who speak this language. You know, We can then promote this xenophobia that perpetuates a lot of the racism that we're already claim, you know, we're already saying this is the issue we're dealing with. So that's also the hard part is that it compounds in that way. And unfortunately, these ideas are sometimes legitimated or reinforced by what some politicians say openly. So recently this year, I think uh, we had the politician who said uh, something along the line that immigrants come to Quebec and big percentage of them do not work and do not speak French. And of course, I mean, I don't have the data to prove, like to give you the real data, but that's clearly not true at all. And, but this stays, you know, because someone who is in power said it and it just stays in people's Im imagination. And also I just wanted to add something real quick, like uh, Sandrine, you mentioned that, uh, so your parents came, they were already educated. They studied again in Quebec and they got degrees and all that. And still they could not get a job. And sometimes, immigrants come and they are educated and they would want to study again just to, just to prove that they can you know they can work in whatever the field that they want to but they can't because there is a matter of, of survival you know tomorrow I have to pay the bills or I have mental space and time to take two years to complete some degree and then to improve on the long term my life 
this this is great, but it's not always possible. And it's really heartbreaking because a lot of people are stuck somewhere because of events that's come to them and they cannot get out of it. Yeah, this idea of investing in the future is very different when you're in survival mode, when you're trying to make sure that your family has what you need in that moment to be safe, to have your needs met. It's not possible to then also think, well, if I invest in this other process, if I pay to go to school and if I spend all this time to do this, you know, and I don't think people recognize that because we sit at times in a place of privilege and we can say, well, this is how you can improve your station or this is how you can make a better life for yourself. But yeah, that sounds great, you know, in theory. But again, what is your position? Are you coming from a place of privilege where it's like, well, I'm comfortable and I don't have concerns about my needs being met. I'm not trying to quote unquote fit into a society that doesn't accept me as I am. I'm not dealing with all of those extra barriers. And then on top of that, trying to figure out how to establish myself, you know, it's not the same thing. So really stepping back from that place of judgment for people who come from majority culture or they have citizenship and they have always lived in that place, they have to step back from their place of privilege and recognize that the barriers that are stacked against other people who come are not the same as the experiences that they're having. And if we don't consider that context is different for everyone, then we're perpetuating those same lies. Manar, you mentioned that the statements that were held or made by the government official were held onto, that a lot of times that happens because they feed those racist notions that people hold or those biases that people hold about other groups. And so it's like, well, I don't have this interaction with this other, right, this group that I don't know and understand. And so therefore, whatever I'm told about them seems to make sense. And then the quote unquote evidence that's presented reinforces this notion. And again, that evidence is the result or the consequence of these laws and these problems that have been put in place to hold people back. That's where it's really hard to disrupt those systems. And then you have people who just don't even want to call it a system. Mm -hmm. And like, it's, it's running smoothly. <laughs> the conversation is tiered in one way. There is no room for conversation with multiple people at the table when this happens, because it's confirming some biases, it's confirming some racist ideas, it's confirming some ignorance. So I think it's really, really frustrating. Um, another thing that happens, I think also for those families, so for the, again, we're talking about our parents, but the they don't have the time, as Manara was saying, to put a lot of emphasis on for example, going back to school and, and, and trying to improve their situation, but then it often falls on the next generation, right? And I think that's also when those laws will pressure those parents to maybe forget about their culture, because now, since I'm not able to do it, then my offsprings need to be able to assimilate, because that's what we want. Integration is assimilation. It's not inclusion. It's not the same thing. So if we're trying to integrate, sometimes parents who, who hear these things, um, which is a bit what happened with me, again, it doesn't have to be said outwardly, but you feel the pressure of your kids should know how the system works, they should know how the politics work here, and they should know the language, and they should be mastered as if they're uh, monolingual speakers. But then again, did we think about that background, that home culture, that heritage culture, that heritage language that can be lost in the process if we do not think about the person as a whole, the family as a whole, and the children as a whole? And yes, that's when we're speaking about language and identity and forgetting about how those laws create pressures on those families. And that's systemic. I do have a question, Sandrine, about your experiences working with Indigenous families and how this sort of applies to the work that you're doing there in terms of upholding heritage languages and cultural experiences and expressions while also living within a system that is attempting to oppress. Definitely growing up, trying to strive to better understand myself um, through that erasure and, and, and that lack of knowledge of where I come from because of language loss, uh, language attrition and whatnot. I think that it did bring inside me that need to be able to be the voice or accompany people who are in the same situations. So working with Indigenous people, with the Innu communities, the Innu First Nations uh, in Quebec happened by just coincidentally. It's not something that I looked for. It's something that just happened. But since then, it's been 10 years now. And I do realize that they're kind of also looking for the same thing that I'm looking for, which is revitalizing and preserving their culture and identity and language. So 
their language for so many different reasons through history, uh, because of laws, because of uh, residential schools, because of the 60s school, because, and, and I will let people go in and just type this in Google and you will find all these things about in, in Canada. But what happened is that they were stripped off of their language, um, very explicitly told that they can't speak it, that they should not, and that it's the devil in itself by a lot of, of the Catholic religion in Quebec, at least. So I think that now there is this movement for them, by them, to go in and find that voice again and find those words and find that language and, or make sure that they don't lose them. So depending on the communities that you work with. So for me, the community that I work with, uh, the different communities are very different. Some um, strong languages spoken at home and uh, in the community, some a bit less. So my work as a speech therapist is to use my privilege as a professional, that little privilege that I do have, to ensure that I can validate that need that they feel to keep their language going and to not also be taken by that French preservation that sometimes forgets about the other culture. Right. So I think that that's why I really find myself in this work. And I think that's why I really love it. And I think it's also helping me for my own journey personally as well to always remember that this is something that if I'm, I can do for others, it's something that I can also do for myself. So my next question, since we've kind of looked at language specifically, I want to shift a little bit into more of the religious expression and um, religious identity and practice. And Manach, I know that when we spoke before, we discussed some challenges that you faced in terms of your Muslim faith, particularly post 9-11. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about preservation of your identity in that way, the visibility of your identity in that way, and how that may be challenging in the space that you occupy in Canada. Yeah, so I think 9-11 is, you know, it happened in the in the United States, but it's a worldwide topic. Let's call it like that. Um, I, I was a child. I was in elementary school when it when it happened. And just like a quick anecdote, I that day on that day, uh, we, me and a group of kids from my class, were going to visit a TV channel on that specific day. And we got there, and I mean, maybe I would not have understood what is 9-11 and what happened, but because we got to this TV channel studio and all the journalists, like in a movie, were running in every direction and saying something happened in New York. And then everybody was panicking. And then we started hearing about all, you know, Afghanistan and, and, and about Muslim people and all these topics started to come up in the news. And that had never really happened, at least in my child's head, I had never heard about these things before. Uh, I think I, I became aware of it really quickly because of that. And I'm sure a lot of people had it much, much worse than me in the West, but I was a victim of racist slurs or racist insults, you know, on the bus, at the mall, on the street. Not that many times. I mean, I remember most of them. And some, I guess, were related to that. But some are also related to other issues that are specific to, to Quebec and to different kind of propaganda that we have against, against Muslims. I wear the hijab, so I know we're on the podcast, we don't see me, but I'm an Arab-looking, white-skinned woman that wears a hijab. And I think I became, yeah, I became aware that when people see me, that's the first thing that they see. And for a long time, I was really self-conscious about it. And at the same time, I was feeling that just the fact that I exist is resistance. So there's like these two feelings that are kind of antagonists. You know, on, on one side, I feel powerful. I feel, okay, I'm, I am myself. I am a marker of resistance. And at the same time, I'm super self-conscious that I am going to go get my patient from the waiting room and they're going to see me and they're going to think something. Well, if I look differently, they would have seen nothing. They would think that's the therapist. So I always have these thoughts in, uh, in my mind. I know that I, I was uh, denied a job, not in my professional life, more in my student life, because I'm, I'm wearing the hijab. I know for a fact this uh, happened to me. And it just, there's always this, this thing where I know that if I do something annoying, I'd say I'm on, I'm on the bus and I, I'm annoying to someone. I might be subjected to someone being mad at me because I'm annoying. Hey, why are you, why are you doing that? And on top of that, there is always the risk that I'm going to hear something racist or something Islamophobic because of how I look. And maybe you can relate with me also for because of, your, of the color of your skin as well, that you're always at risk of that and you cannot separate yourself from who you are. So that's something that, that stays with me. But I mean, I think now I'm at peace with it and I'm really proud of who I am and I'm really satisfied with myself. 
But there's always moments where you feel, wow, like people really don't like people who look like me or people really don't want us to, to, to exist in the public sector because we, we bother everybody. And I feel that I often had to give extra effort to be extra nice, extra smart, extra, extra, extra to, to get by, even though if it's not so consciously that I'm doing it, but I realized that I, I've been super, you know, under pressure from that side and also uh, related to what Sankin said earlier that our parents couldn't get to certain goals. So now it falls on us to be extra, extra, extra and get there. So we have this complex of performance, I think a lot of us because of all these factors. Trying to prove the narrative wrong in some ways, um, despite it being highly inaccurate in the first place, but being forced to confront that. I remember 9-11, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And so um, I was in grad school 1.0, I'll call it, because it was my master's program. Um, but I was there um, living downtown and part of the attack hit the Pentagon, which is not far from where I live. And when I came back from my placement, I was doing a placement in a school for uh, my clinical practicum. And when I came back to D.C., I saw just like soldiers and all of this around and so the fear that was escalated at that point, obviously, with everything that happened, I think also opens the door for this idea of an enemy, right? And it, it allows people to be receptive to this idea that this group is responsible. This, you know, identity is the problem. And it, it takes away the individual aspect of who we are and the individual choices that were made by people who maybe look a certain way. All of our groups, no matter how we slice it, whether it's by age, race, religion, anything, all of those groups contain people who make poor decisions and people who make great decisions. All of those groups contain people who do wonderful things and people who don't do wonderful things. And I think that what happens, particularly with the quote unquote othered populations, the minoritized groups, those that we sort of want to relegate to the margins of society, it's easier to deny that individualism and that individual identity which then contributes to this idea that you just shared about having to prove something or having to perform or having to demonstrate and, and all of that, that contributes to that, which is, is again, violent. It comes back to the violence again. I think you, you mentioned a super important point is that we're not individuals. I mean, we are, but we're not seen as individuals and we're always a somehow homogenous group, you know, and you have to apologize for what people who look like you, even though they had nothing to do with you, did. And you always have to kind of hold on your on your shoulder the weight of what your group did. And your group can be infinite. Like I am Arab. I am Muslim. I am Quebecois. I'm Canadian. Am I going to be responsible for what all these people do, you know, because I, I'm related to them somehow. So yeah, I think when we're from when we're a part of a racialized or minoritized group, we often have to unfortunately carry the weight of the whole group. So I'd like to take what we've been talking about and connect it back to the work that you're doing now with Gafala. Can you explain what was the impetus behind creating a program to address racism for you both? Garoua came to be after the events of George Floyd. We are not a profession that tends to be very politically and socially involved, but somehow one of our colleagues, Laurence Charret, wrote on Facebook, On we have a page with all the speech therapists uh, of Quebec, and she wrote kind of a rally cry of, hey, what are we doing? What, about our, what are we going to do about this? There's this movement happening around the world, and for once we see some movement happening in, in Quebec, actually, about something that we often don't talk about um, in, in uh, the French side of uh, Canada. So what are we going to do about it? So that little rally cry, I would call it, or that call to action um, actually brought us all together. So we, myself, Manar, and eight other persons came together to create. We wanted to write a letter and to express everything that we think. So we wanted to have that letter sent as well as um, have signatures and petitions to show how much of an importance we think that we also have to think about anti-racism in our field. But then through meeting together through a whole summer, we met multiple times and we ended up actually writing a whole report. We actually started thinking that we needed data. Um, that's something that's quite lacking in Canada, in Quebec. We don't have data on minoritized groups, on racialized groups. We don't have enough in terms of profession, especially in our profession. And, um, and we actually had to use some of um, Asha's data to be able to kind of explain how very white 
female our profession was. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we created that report um, and a whole summer we really worked very, very hard. And then by August 2020, we were able to create a report that was able to describe the impacts of racism in our professions in speech language pathology, as well as audiology. I think we had like one data that came from the government of Canada, which was that in 2016, 4.7% of speech therapists considered themselves as racialized or they used the word visible minority. And I think 0% were indigenous. That was like mainly the only data that we had. And we had to build something around it with also American data, as Sandrine said. For me, it was interesting with the data situation in Canada. I haven't done a ton of work there. I did some research uh, in order to present to, to groups in Ontario. I did a presentation with the Hospital for Sick Children, Andalusia Speech Therapy, and Early Abilities as well, maybe a couple other organizations. And so as, in preparing for that, I wanted to look at data and see what kind of the trends are and what's going on. And it was kind of interesting. I had sort of two thoughts about this. Like the fact that one, the data is not there was exciting in some ways because I'm like, everything that we do in the US is based in this check the box, identify who you are, you know, whether your sex, your, your race, your heritage, you know, everything is constantly checking a box. Like everything's in a box. If I apply for anything, and so for me, it was like, oh, this is refreshing. You don't have this whole focus centering on these boxes and everything, which is great. But then also it's like a double-edged sword. It's horrible too, because then it's hard to give data and show trends that are negatively and, and disproportionately impacting minoritized groups. And then it's harder to see things like systemic racism that government officials can then deny, you know? So it's very hard to illustrate that if the data aren't there to support it. And so it was like, this is great. And also very horrible at the same time. So I can't imagine having to look at the data that we have in order to form a report to effectively share the concerns that you have. And I'm hoping that in the future, it'll change for you all. We were told so many times, oh, really? You want to, you really want to talk about this? But like, what's your proof? What's your proof that this is happening? So that's why we wrote this report. And that's why we also put testimonies because people would be telling us that, well, we're not like the States. So this happened this didn't happen in Canada, but it's like, no, things like this happen in Canada all the time. Yeah. So it, it was very difficult, even when we started publishing it. Also, just all of us in our various fields or also just in our various workplaces. So some people in our group were, and even me, I was kind of approached by people that know me and who asked me, so are you sure you want to do this? Or why are you saying these things? Or just looking at you in a certain way or kind of staying away from you or, or kind of pulling back. And so, yeah, so we, we really had to kind of create that kind of safe space inside our group where we could come and just share our experiences that pretty much negatively affected the way we were seen by our colleagues and people around us because of us putting out this report. I even had my parents, um, actually my father would always tell me like, be careful. <laughs> be careful. Like he, he was afraid that something negative would happen because, you know, I, I signed this paper saying that there is racism and systemic racism in Quebec where we have the pretty much only premier in all of Canada that says that that does not exist in Quebec. So yeah, that was special. I just wanted to add that I think that, yeah, it was, it was a lot of work. I think the response was mixed. You know, a lot of people had have good intention and they, they want to do something. They don't really know what to do, but they're, they're showing interest. But definitely, I think that we started a conversation. Like there was nothing happening, especially in our field of speech therapy and audiology. It was like zero. And now like, we're kind of like mini, like famous, you know, group like, oh yeah, yeah, Garoa, they do these kind of things. So people heard about us they sometimes reach out to us and we're all a group of volunteers we became friends and as something said it's such a safe space I'm so grateful to have this space where we can just come and talk and you know empty all the positive negative emotions that that we're going through but yeah there's definitely something that has started but we're often like the initiatives are, that happen in any like workplace or university are, are often the first one. So for example, I, um, Sandrine mentioned earlier that she works a lot uh, with indigenous communities. I haven't, but I work mainly in the neighborhoods where I grew up, where all these 
newcomers and also immigrants in general from second, third generation live in really somewhere where I feel that I belong and I came back to work there. And I presented something to my colleagues about what Garoua did and some initiatives that we would like to work on. And I have received so many messages from other racialized colleagues that I didn't even know, like it was a bigger group. And they told me, I've been working here for 20 years, for 15 years. And these topics have, these words have never been pronounced. They have never been mentioned, like racism, anti-racism, discrimination, microaggression. These words have never been said before. And that's really, I mean, it's it's, it's a huge problem. I'm happy that we're, we started something, but there's a very long way to go. Oh, yes. Yeah. And even with our regulatory body, so the Ordre des Orthophonistes and Audiologists Quebec, um, there are things that have started, that have moved, I think I would say maybe probably faster than if not, and, and, you know, we're, we're quite happy to sometimes even be contacted by other professions who tell us, how did you, how did you come about to create that group? How did you come about to write that report? Like, were you paid? Were you, and we're like, no, it's all volunteer work. But yeah, so it's, it's really, we do get a lot of people, especially the racialized or marginalized people who come and ask us, like, how did you do it? Because I, it's true, Manaf said, we were the first in our field, but also one of the first in the regulated professions in all of the province. So, you know, you know we're going to take that. Like, it's, it's, it's nice. It's a nice feeling to be asked to, to, to share what we did. Thank you for what you are doing. Um, you both mentioned the importance of looking at testimonies and, and sort of bringing in this qualitative data, which is huge. And that's part of why I created The Culture We Speak, because there's such a lack of voices from minoritized groups and different perspectives, and also that the lack of individualization of different identities, right? So these are individuals who are out here doing things and they're not their collective. They're part of whoever they see themselves to be and they're forging their own identity in this space, particularly in speech pathology and education. A lot of what we have done has been very whitewashed. A lot of what we have done has been catered solely to mainstream populations. And then we use that mainstream data and information to then essentially judge and assess how other people are measuring up to this idea that this is the right way of existing in, in society. And that in and of itself does harm. And I, I hate to go back and harp on Manar's word, but it goes back to violence. I mean, at the end of the day, we're doing harm to specific communities and we're perpetuating some of those things if we're not actively educating ourselves and working against it. And so your group is a tool for that. And that's amazing that you're getting calls from people outside of the profession to do the same thing because it's huge. And I, you know, I just appreciate the work um, when I came across what you all are doing. I was like, I need to talk to these people here. I was just really excited to see that. And if ever there's a way for me to contribute directly or indirectly to your efforts, you know, I'm happy to do so. Um, but I do appreciate your, your work. Thank you. So real quick, can you tell the audience where they can connect with your organization, how they can learn more and even get involved in anti-racism work? Yeah. So we are on Facebook at Gahoa. So Gahoa is G-A-A-R-O-A. And we're also on IG at Gahoa, G-A-A-R-O-A 2020 as well. But we have our website that we launched last year, uh, which is full of resources, full of you want to find an organization that deals with a certain culture or background, or you want to find books, or you want to find material, you want to know how to um, learn about yourself and your biases and anti-racism work, um, Indigenous or racialized or Black um, in Canada and uh, elsewhere. So you can find us on our website at www.gaaroa.ca. That's garoa.ca, CA for Canada. I've actually been to your website. I love the resources that are available there. So I would definitely encourage listeners to take some time to learn uh, and use the resources to, to engage in anti-racism work, especially in our profession. Yeah, we try to be as active as we can on our social media. Like there are periods of the year where we're super active and we're sharing a lot of things. And then there are other periods where we're a bit more quiet, but we're always there. And there's always someone who's picking up the work and giving some hours because we're all volunteers and we, we really care about this cause and about Gehoa. So we give our time, but it's always fluctuating a little bit. Because rest is also activism for us, right? So if we're resting, that's part of our activism. Our self-care matters. Get like on this. there where you can and get that information. But yes. yeah, we have to take downtime. And I'm sorry, I had people, you know, reach out because I hadn't done episodes in a minute. I'm like, look, you know, I need to do some other things. I got things going on aside from just this. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the support and the encouragement, but sometimes we need a break too. 
you know, yeah. and that's okay. So I give full permission for breaks. I'd like to segue back to language specifically, but looking at it as we practice as speech pathologists or as Wotofunis. And just our identity as language nerds. I know I'm a language nerd. I don't know if you identify as the same, but I kind of would like to know a little bit more about your perception of dialects and language use just in general, whether that's within therapy or even in your own spaces, navigating to your communities, et cetera, coming up. Yeah, I think for me growing up at at different stages of me growing up, um, my dialect or accent or the way I spoke was very, very tightly connected to my identity. So when I was in elementary school and when I was, you know, younger, so I told you earlier that um, I grew up in 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 a neighborhood where there was a lot of, there were a lot of immigrants from different countries and kind of each community had the way of speaking mixed with the Montreal slang and we all like borrowed words from each other and there was a certain way of speaking and that way of speaking meant that you belonged in the group. We kind of spoke in a similar way and we understood each other and I was always surprised to hear friends who were also immigrant who spoke with a very French Quebecois dialect. To me this was surprising because To me, I was so attached to the way I spoke and to defining myself compared to others. Oh, you hear how I speak, so you know that I am Arab or you know that I have that that background. I was some sort of pride in that and of power as well. Uh, You know, at that time, that's how I I felt. And I felt also some sort of betrayal when when my friends spoke differently. It's like, you have to speak like us to, to belong with us. You know, that's how we speak. And then when I went to high school, I went to a different neighborhood uh, because I was attending some specific program. And in that school, it was mainly white kids, and and at least in the program that I was in. And even though I grew up in Montreal and I I spoke French perfectly, um, it was kind of a cultural shock to me because I spoke very differently and I, people understood me, but I definitely stood out, but not in a positive way. And kind of without doing it on purpose, I artificially changed my accent and I started speaking in a very Quebecois way, which is super funny because even today I don't speak like that. I speak kind of in between of all of all of that. And uh, I realized that I was just trying to fit in so bad and I already felt sometimes singled out because of how I looked. And then on top of it, I speak differently, so I have to fit in. I was always also interested in languages and dialects, and I always noticed how people speak and the words they use. So I I definitely was super aware of how I spoke and all, and, you know, all these different cultural elements of dialect. When I first graduated, I remember that I had to tone down also the way that I naturally spoke when I was at work because I wanted to sound more professional so I know with this concept of using my white voice, I was really doing that. Like I was getting to work and using this different way of speaking because I the other way is not professional enough. Just like when I answered the phone, it would be uh, the same. And sometimes I would catch myself relapsing, like saying a word that's a bit too familiar, too slangy, without being a bad word or anything, which is that it's not, I thought it's not okay in a work setting and now I realize that I don't have to do that I can just speak the way the way that uh that, that I want and I think this can be empowering for my patients and my clients who also speak with different dialects and hear me speaking different dialects of French and we all understand each other and we can all work together it helps me also think about okay so when I want to talk about that specific object I use that word what what word do you use and we're going to use that one so to, to be aware and to adapt that's on one side. And then on, at the same time, I've, I've encountered some microaggression, like patients with all good intentions saying something like, oh, the educator at the daycare of my child speaks like you. And then my child starts speaking like, like you guys, like the accent that you guys use, meaning probably she was, you know, she's Arab. She's maybe from North Africa. I'm not from North Africa. I speak very differently from them. They speak very differently from me, but they just put us in one hole and you guys all speak the same and you say inshallah and I don't know what else what other stereotype they have about us so yeah that's that's it for my background of dialect and so yes so um my experience was kind of different because when my parents and I arrived uh in Quebec I mostly grew up in majority white neighborhoods, uh, white schools. Me and my sister, because we're just a year and a half apart, we were the mostly, the only two black girls in the whole school, like primary school, elementary school, all the way until we got into middle school. So the French dialect that I used to speak was French Quebecer. And funny enough, um, of my parents, so my parents who also 
came at the same time as us. So my mother would also kind of speak that uh, she she kind of got that dialect quite quickly as well. And then my father would keep more of the Africanized French, right, from the same way he used to speak. Obviously, it has changed. It's not exactly the same, but he, he you could definitely hear an accent in my dad's voice that was different from the French Quebecer accent. But all this to say, so I was speaking French Quebecer um, until I realized that um, when I was in high school that there were other people like me. Oh my goodness, there was people who were Black. Uh, there were people who came from either the same country as my parents did, I did, where I was born, or other countries, and people from Haiti, people from Congo, people from everywhere, people from Arabic countries. And that was the first time, and for me, that was an awe moment. And I really, for me, in terms of identity, I really felt that I had a choice for the first time. And altogether, when we started just hanging out and, and speaking together then that dialect, that new French dialect that I would call that immigrant dialect came to be. And then we were speaking with a different type of accent and with borrowed words from all our different languages. So that was very, very interesting. And yes, I am a language nerd like you, Diana. So for me, that was, for me, liberating. So today as an adult, um, I could switch. I switch from one dialect to the other, depending on who I'm with. And that for me, is super, super important. I do see it today as an asset, but I do realize also the prejudices that come for those who can't, right? So if I'm over the phone, I can use the French Quebecer accent, the person will never know that I'm Black. Um, whereas it shouldn't be something that I have or feel the need to go to. Um, I don't think about it anymore, but I do it. Um, whereas there are people who can't code switch and they will be penalized when they can't code switch it. I think that that for me is the main issue. So in terms of our practice, it has made me think a lot about the work we do in accent reduction. When adults come to me because they want to perfect their French or English accent, I always want to open up with kind of this disclaimer of, I just want to acknowledge that this thing that we're doing shouldn't have to be. That anybody can decide what they want to do with their languages and identities, I think. But I think for me, it's super important to always bring that first kind of acknowledgement and validation, even if sometimes they don't even realize, sometimes they might look at me weird, but for me, it's super important that I say, I just want to say that this could be one of the reasons why you're here today, right? Um, so that there's that. And also, just like Manas said, working with kids. Yes, always asking them, like, how would you say that? And even in French, Quebec, there's many accents, they're very different accents. So I will ask them, how do you say it at home? And it could be a little white French Quebecer girl or a little white French Quebecer boy. And I will ask them because the, the literal, the sustained French that we see in books and at school is not the same either. And then especially with my Indigenous clients, there are also French Indigenous dialects, the same as English Indigenous dialect and, you know, all of these. So for me, it's really important to always kind of bring those dialectal ways of speaking as an identity and something that is validated um, and I want to validate it. And if ever we code switch, I like to make sure that I code switch not only from the home dialect to the school dialect, but also from the school dialect back to home. And for me, that that last one is often not done. So just to kind of kind of explicitly make them aware of all of these exist and all of these coexist actually, and that it's all right for them to coexist. So important. And I wish more people in our profession did that. And also in educational spaces, period, because there's such a richness to it. Um, and it kind of ties back to what you were talking about with the six-month window of you needing to learn this language and do well. You know, through research as language nerds, that that's not real, you know, and that if you maintain both and you build both, then you're better off in the long run. So it's really frustrating to see that a lot of our programs reinforce these notions in addition to the laws and bills that have been created in different spaces, but also a lot of people's attitudes reinforce this idea that you need to code switch or you need to learn this language in order to be successful. And one, you don't have to do that. There is no reason that you can't be successful without that. Also, the way you communicate is part of your identity, it's part of who you are, and that's who you're presenting to the world. And the way you do that, whether you code switch or not, is your choice. It's the speaker's choice and it's the speaker's decision on how they want to present themselves. Um, but the assumption, like you said, that people can code switch just automatically without ever considering that it is a skill that is acquired. You have to learn the codes in order to do it. You know, there's just no way to code switch if you have not learned two different codes. That seems very common sense to me, but with the educational plans I inherit, it clearly is not. With the things that are targeted in therapy, it's clearly not. So just think about that um, the next time you assume that a student has some sort of an impairment or a client has an impairment because they don't code switch, consider that maybe those two codes are not in place in the same way. 
and that that's okay. Yeah, definitely. And and the other thing that I would add also, of course, we work sometimes with children, with students, but there's also their families and their parents, and or also we can also work with adults. And I have heard many times kind of assumptions that when a person has a different dialect in French, it's, I don't think it's conscious, but it's like the professional or the therapist thinks that that parent does not fully understand what you're explaining or that they're not fully involved or they're not fully interested uh, or they they kind of speak a bit of French, but not enough, obviously, to 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 have a formal conversation about a very specific complex topic and then they don't bring an interpreter and I think all these elements bring so much prejudice to the family to the to the children and then for example I come and speak to the parents and I realize that they have a ton of things to say but nobody had access to it you know because the, the effort was not made or they assume that the parents are not involved or not interested or don't understand I had one time a mother, I really always think of her. She is from Syria and she's a very educated woman. She's really proud of who she is. And she was telling me, I'm trying so hard to learn French. And I know that I'm a smart person and I know that I can bring so much to the table, but I don't have enough vocabulary and, and, and phrases and grammar yet to express myself and show my identity, show who I am. So when I go to appointments at the public clinic, the person in front of me thinks that I am not as smart as I am because I can't express myself fully. And this thing that she told me last year really stayed with me. I know it, of course, I see my parents, I see other adults that are also immigrant, but the fact that she was my patient, she told me that it really opened my eyes to this specific point where parents are sometimes disregarded or underestimated. And that's such a big deal as well. And they get counted out. And that's largely the work that I do in the Respect the Dialect group. I look at African-American English and then mainstream American English and how it is that we position mainstream as this golden, wonderful thing as if, and then <laughs> treat African-American English as if it's less than, and that a person who speaks it is less intelligent. And then at the same time that we're doing that, we turn around and once we can modify the African-American English, you know, when we put it in your movie and your movie's authentic, now we like it, you know, or when... McDonald's says, I'm loving it. Now it's okay to use non-mainstream dialect. You know, it's okay because African-American English is cool now because it's tied to their pockets. But when it comes out of my mouth, you know, all the letters that follow my name are just no longer there. They disintegrate because I spoke in African-American English. And so there's so many prejudices around the way we use language, the way we use dialects, even accents. And that's why where we started, you know, you mentioned that there's a bill that's protecting a specific language has its good side and bad side. Clearly, there are definitely drawbacks to that. Um, but here, we don't protect it in that way. And so it's like, well, this person doesn't speak the way that I would like. So therefore, you know, yeah, I don't have to give them an opportunity. That, that's a whole other topic. But you just opened the door on the topic of cultural appropriation. You know, when, when it's McDonald's, when it's in a funny movie, then it's cool. When it's oh, good food, then it's cool. But when it's the actual person, it's not so cool anymore. Right? It's, it's, it's how it's going to make me feel. Right. It's so objectifying because it's about using it for a purpose that helps the many, but forgets the people to whom it belongs. So for me, it's so it's wrong in so many ways. Yeah. A lot of appropriation happens. So, OK, so I'm going to close this out. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm going to have to continue conversations with both of you just moving forward. Um, and you may have to come back one day. But <laughs> yes. my question, I guess, is is sort of when was that moment for you that you noticed that any aspect of your culture or language was not part of that mainstream identity? Yeah, for me, um, again, grew up in a in very, very white neighborhoods. Um, I didn't have many other people except me and my sister. So at some point, we never were in the same classes, obviously, because we're not the same age. But yeah, I think it was really um, a recess one day, somebody came and asked me, so many questions about my skin color and asked me things about, I don't even remember. I, I just remember chocolate and smell and taste. Can I take, anyways. Yeah. And from then on, I paused and I was a, a I was a kid of very, very few words. Um, I was very, very observant. And that's when I started realizing after that, I just realized how people would really touch me all the time everywhere, like my face, my hair, my clothes. And, and I just realized that yeah, no, I don't like this. So I kind of, I would say that my elementary school, I was really very um, in the back of the classroom. I was a smart kid, but I would just never say anything just because I wanted to just not be noticed. Um, so I kind of erased, I tried to erase myself as much as possible from group settings. Um, so yeah, I would say elementary school would be the time. Yeah. 
Oh, it's crazy that you remember this event in the on recess, you know, and you remember these words. So like, so not okay to be spoken to like this or touched or anything. You know, it's horrible. Um, I think there were different uh, moments, many occurrences where that I realized that I was not the mainstream because I grew up, you know, around me there was a lot of people like me as well. There was the my community, which is a bit like my big family. So I was surrounded by that which which was a big protection and really positive thing in my life but maybe when I first wore the hijab I was in elementary school I definitely lost friends I definitely realized that I was different but the main moment was so quickly in 2012 in Quebec there was a big student strike regarding tuition fees uh hike at that time they wanted to raise the prices and so on so we were on strike for very long period and, and for me it was a really unifying moment like all the students all the Quebecois people were not all but a lot of people were together in the street you know manifesting for something protesting for something and it was I felt so much like a belong it was like a huge moment for me and then um, I went abroad for student exchange and I came back in 2013 and that year we had a new prime minister. Uh, she wanted to implement a law that was called the Quebec Charter of Value. And uh, this is like maybe the first time from that point until now, this topic has been in the media like all the time. And this led to the current laws that I mentioned in the beginning. But this was the first time that really that they that we openly as a society spoke about visible religious signs and Muslim women and hijab and this kind of topic. And I felt so singled out. And they were talking about religious signs, but they were clearly, you know, one of the main targets was Muslim women who were had the headscarf, the hijab. And this was a breaking point for me. And I think I never came back from it. It's a bit sad. I it broke something with my sense of belonging to Quebec, to the French language. I, I still belong. I, I love speaking French and I, I love to say I'm from Montreal, but it, it just changed something for me because I realized that I am not wanted the way that I am in this society. So that's that's the, the trigger point for me. There's a lot of healing that needs to be done with all the microaggressions, aggressions, and violence that we live on the daily. And I'm so sorry, <laughs> Manar, to hear this. Um, I just want to kind of remind everyone that, yeah, Canada, Quebec, we are going through things as well as people from the minoritized and marginalized groups. And thank you for having us and, and letting us share this, uh, Diana, because those are very important messages that I'm happy to be able to share with all of you. Thank you, Manash, for your transparency and both of you for your transparency throughout. But I know that's an emotional thing to share. And so I appreciate you being willing to do that here and, and feeling safe to do so in this environment. So thank you. Uh, Sandrine kind of gave us some final thoughts. Do you have any final thoughts to share with the audience by any chance, Manash? I'm really happy that we are able to talk about these topics now. Thank you first for your active listening. And I'm happy that these words and these ideas will go into the world and people will hear them. Because there's so much work to do. There's so much healing, as you said, Sandrine, and so much understanding that needs to be implemented and, and reading and, and all that. So again, I think we're just planting something small, talking about anti-racism, about discrimination, microaggression, and more on the level of you know speech therapy and, and intervention and evaluation and so on we're slowly starting to talk about cultural responsiveness and integrating all these concepts in our practice and I hope it just gets better in the following years well thank you both for your willingness to share and and your transparency again and just for being a guest on the show I appreciate it and and for your advocacy and your work I, I appreciate all of this Thanks for tuning in to The Culture We Speak. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and click that five-star rating. For additional content and discussion about culture and language, join our Facebook group. To learn more about our sponsor, React Initiative, Inc., visit iReact.org.